This is WexCast from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. I'm Melissa Starker, PR and Content Manager for the Wex. In October, the Wexner Center hosted the Columbus theatrical premiere of Bing Lu's Minding the Gap, a thoughtful, touching, and beautifully shot documentary that focuses on Bing and other skaters in his hometown of Rockford, Illinois, as they grow up and face a variety of challenges in their futures and their pasts. We were fortunate enough to have the filmmaker at the screening. In the time since we presented the film, Minding the Gap has been widely hailed as one of the best documentaries of the year, picking up a number of critics' awards and a Gotham Award nomination for Best Documentary. This week, it was announced that the film has made the shortlist for consideration for an Oscar for Best Documentary Feature. With the film rightly garnering so much praise, and with its availability for all to stream on Hulu, we decided to share the Q&A between Bing Lu and Wex associate film video curator Chris Stoltz, in which Lu discusses the creation of the film and his decision to become one of its subjects. Let's listen. So I know with uh, award season kicking up and you've been on the festival tour that your schedule's pretty busy. So thanks for making the time to be here today. Thanks for playing the phone there. <laughs> While it's still fresh in my ears, I want to just say you nailed that last music cue so well. Like That song is one that means a lot to me and is always kind of there for you in tough moments and just coming after everything you've been through in that film. It's so cathartic and good. I'd love to hear you talk about the film kind of presents one narrative, but you know, the evolution of finding your way to making this film from, from filming friends, skateboarding, growing up, and then transitioning into, you know, interviewing these friends and, and having maybe an end goal in mind, like a, a, a ultimate purpose that you want this footage for. Yeah, uh, let me start by saying this. There's a lot of sort of construction of the first act and, you know, like what the film is that was done more in hindsight. I didn't meet Kieran until I was in my mid-20s. He's seven years younger than me. Um, he knew who I was, but, you know, I, he, he was like a little, you know, he was like a little kid at the park that I never met. And Zach, you know, I had like five minutes of him. You know, I met him when I was 17. I moved to Chicago when I was 19. And I was doing projects, you know, on the side. And then when I was in my mid-20s, I was like, well, you know, I wanted my next project to be on, you know, like how I was just noticing a lot of, you know, my peers and people in my community, like, really struggling with growing up. Um, and I felt like, you know, a lot of us came from broken homes. And so let's try to explore that. And the project started as a sort of a cross-country road trip. And, you know, I was just interviewing skateboarders, many of them who I'd never met before, but, you know, I identified them as someone who, you know, matched a certain demographic, like a single mom or, you know, a minority in, in a neighborhood that's mostly white. And they all talked about, you know, the past and past traumas and what it means for them today. And then a year and a half in, I went back to Rockford and I was just, you know, filming skateboarders out there and I noticed this kid Kier and he was just like so you know magnetic in many ways and the first time I interviewed him was that moment in that attic where we commiserate about crying after getting beaten and from then on out it was like I just followed him shortly after I reconnected with Zach and I found out he's going to become a father and that was a really trackable story you know he just didn't seem ready for it so that was that was the genesis and the, the development of this process. But do you have footage of Kier like as a or did you not shoot that footage? I didn't shoot or? most of it. Um, okay. I when I, I didn't go back to archival until like the last few months of editing. And when I did, it was like just to try to find the... I knew I had some of Zach, and I was like going to try to look for some of myself. 
But then in the process, I found this footage of this kid getting into a fight, and I was like, oh my God, that's Kier. And so I took that, and then I you know, went around to other people who were more his age, who filmed him growing up, and sourced material from them. Yeah, well, that's a tribute to the editing, because watching it on a first viewing, it just flows so naturally and feels like you're finding the film as you're living through it. Seeing it a second time today, the architecture of it started to present itself. So yeah, that's fascinating to hear. And then over the course of filming, obviously this domestic abuse through line starts coming through unavoidably. Is that something you were reluctant to start to pursue as an angle for the film, or did it feel significant that you had to kind of steer the film into that? Well, I mean, the film started as more of a survey film where it's like the issue is very much at the forefront on the tips of our tongue. Almost everybody talked about their parents fighting, you know, when we did that first initial ensemble. And then, you know, like once I started working with Kartemkwen, it was a couple years in, I really fell in love with the idea of verite, you know, character-driven verite storytelling. And so I knew that all of a sudden the story was going to come first and any issue that came out of the film would have to come out of the characters' real lives and what was going on in their lives. And so to that extent, but when Nina told me that Zach was being abusive, it was a clear sort of pathway into having a really character-driven way of digging into domestic violence. My bigger struggle was... Ethically, how do I continue making this film? What gives me the right to go in and you know explore this aspect of the relationship? And that's ultimately what drove me to put myself in the film because I didn't start the film thinking, oh, I'm going to be in the film. Part of what it meant to go back to my family and my upbringing was to sort of show why the filmmaker keeps going and, and like you know keeps just trying to pursue like what happened because you have to understand like why the filmmaker is going there to help you you know see, like, I guess maybe like make judgment calls. I mean, like what the film is doing that second half is to, giving you a really complex picture, a really holistic picture of a cycle of violence. And it's letting the audience sort of decide, is this thing bad? Is this thing good? How does this all work? I think the filmmaker is a part of that process. Yeah, as a filmmaker, it's, it's so different filming Friends. Do you feel like you're filming friends or does it become subjects at some point or how are you balancing this? Because I don't know, you're, you're exposing a lot of the worst parts of people's lives and making it public and maybe trying to maintain friendships with these people, maybe not. Like how do you navigate being like distanced and part of their lives while you're filming or afterwards? Yeah, I mean, Kira and I, we had just met, you know, at the beginning of this process. So it was very much like any other project I've done where the relationship's been built as we went along. But one thing that helps her navigate the, the private and public, which is a struggle that every documentary has to deal with, is that, you know, we told them, we made a decision, like, we're going to show them the film before the film comes out. And it wasn't just one conversation where we told them that. It was like a two or three year conversation where we just kept, I just kept, you know, telling them sometimes on camera, sometimes off. You know, hey, Zach, I just filmed you, you know, in your abandoned house. You ran away to Denver. How do you feel about us, you know, putting that in the film? And he, was, he continually was like, I trust you being like, what happened is what happened. So they all felt like there was a transparency to it. And I think that helped. Ultimately, I think what made me sleep better at night was accepting the fact that if they didn't want this film to come out, I wouldn't put it out, you know, which... Uh, 
I think came out of hearing the story about Kirsten Johnson. So Kirsten Johnson, who made Camera Person, it sort of came out of a different project where she was following these two Afghan women in Afghanistan, uh, verite film, you know, very heavy subject. And then she went back and showed them the film, like the fine cut. And one of them was like, I can't be in this film anymore. I can't, you know, it's, I don't want to be. And she was like, oh. And then she like tried recutting the film without showing her likeness. It wasn't quite working. And then she sort of gave up the project and she walked away. But like it left her with this sort of philosophical hole where she's like, what are we doing as documentary filmmakers? Like, are we exploiting? Like, what does this all mean? All those philosophical questions led to camera person. So I, I think hearing that story gave me, you know, like a model. It was like, okay, if KJ can do it, just walk away and like hold that ethical line, like maybe I can too. But when we showed them all the film, everybody was really happy, you know, they they were surprised, but they were, you know, they were on board with it. And I think they were all surprised that I was in the film too. At the beginning of the week, I finally caught up with the film Eighth Grade um, for the first time, which was wonderful and just kept thinking about how like 13 has to be one of the most awkward ages in your life. But then watching this, it's just reminding me like that, that time when you're starting to become a young adult but have no idea how to navigate the world and it's so awkward. And this is one of the best films I've seen capturing that moment in people's lives and the awkwardness of it. Kiri is just such an open presence and his journey without him in the film I it seems like it would be so insular and dark <laughs> and he brings this lightness to it and I think the thing I was thinking about with eighth grade is just there's there's a really poignancy to to like getting a job that you kind of hate, but yet it's like getting you out in the world and that's all handled so well. Could you talk about like constructing Kiri and like his arc through the film, I guess, talking about the structure. I loved eighth grade so much. And I, I liked it because, I mean, it's one of those films that shows you something that like we as a society dismiss without even knowing we're dismissing it. We're dismissing eighth grade girls' emotions. You know, it's like young people's emotions are dismissed so much. And, you know, for someone like Kiri, who's getting a job as a dishwasher, you know, like that's a huge monolithic moment if you're a young person growing up in Rockford. Like getting your first car is a huge, and it's a really emotional moment. And, you know, I think it should be honored as such. So, I mean, his story is way more internal, you know. It's, his intangible goal is to is to sort of get, process his complex relationship with, that, with his father that he's never really processed yet. His tangible goal is to, leave Rockford, you know? And so those are the two things we're building towards. And so you just construct backwards from there. What does Kieran need to leave Rockford? He needs to get a job, he needs to make more money, he needs to save money. What are the obstacles? The past is hard and, and like growing up is scary. His brother steals his money and he overcomes these goals. And on the intangible side, he just slowly, you know, with me, I guess, like processes everything that his father meant to him. And so that was the, that was his story. And in many ways, Zach's story is easier to, to construct because it's like, you know, this happened and this happened and this happened. Yeah, the drama kind of just drops out of him, out of his pores. Um, so I think we have time for some questions from the audience, if there are any out there. Yeah. So uh, skateboarding has a long tradition of being filmed, like almost from its inception, skateboarding has been filmed. And I was wondering how you felt it belongs in that tradition of being filmed, because visually it's very different. Obviously not every uh, sponsor you did looks like this, so it'd be interesting to see how you found it uh, going into that just normal skateboarding video. 
yeah, actually my last short doc before this one was I interviewed photographers and videographers because I found it, you know, it's just weird. We're getting into a time where sometimes there's more lenses than skateboards at spots when people go skateboarding and it's very constructed, you know, it's a very, it's like fictionalized and as an adolescent I had, had issues with it and I like rebelled against that and, you know, I was frustrated that uh, we all were like pretending that this five minute montage where, you know, like the, the growing up montage at the beginning of this film, it's a fiction. Kira and I didn't, like we weren't like stand by me buddies growing up, but that's what, that's just the genre of skate videos, you know, like you just compress whatever months, years of footage into a thing and it's like this emotional ride and we all accept it. To that extent, I mean, that's how I feel about the skate video genre. It's getting pushed in really crazy forms right now. There's like traditionalists who like, I still want to film mini DV. And then there's like Spike Jones who makes million dollar skate videos. But my basic goal for this film when I first started was, you know, how can we get young people <laughs> engaged in things like domestic violence and child abuse? And so skateboarding was just, I saw it as sort of like a, like a medicine or like breadcrumbs that try to lure people into, I think, the medicine that I was trying to, you know, engage with. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm working on a uh, film about how we have to uh, deal with the past in order to move forward as it pertains to young men who experience gun violence in Chicago. So, how much do you return to to Rockford, um, and what are your feelings about it now, not living there? Yeah, so I've lived in Chicago for 10 years. I went back more regularly when I was filming. I haven't really been back since the Rockford premiere in August. Before then, it was, had been like a year since I've been back. So I don't go back that uh, that regularly anymore. But it, I mean, it's a complex place. I think the location and, and everything has like a memory that's good and bad associated to it. It's uh, it's pretty, it's tough. It's tough. It's like revisiting a place where, you know, a, a lot of... Um, Hard feelings are, were left behind. One more question, if there's any out there. In the back. I really thought that presence of Nina was an important part of it. Yeah. And it's still about God and really she's the one that kind of has her act together the most in, in many ways and kind of has to have her act together the most. And we just talked about how her storyline Yeah, I mean, I was editing while I was shooting. It was very much like a bedroom project for many years. I'd work 14 hours on a TV show or whatever, but all I'd be thinking about is, oh, I just filmed this scene with, you know, Zach or Nina. I can't wait to go home and edit it. Um, but uh, she emerged uh, after she moved out. You know, like that was my first time going to film with her because it was like, oh, well, parents separated, you know. And then I just kept following her. And then I, like a year into really tracking her, I asked her on camera, like, how does it feel to be a main character in this film now? And she was like, oh, I didn't realize I was a main character. And so that was a big sort of bonding moment for us. And we where you know, I noticed she started opening up a lot more after that. But I mean, generally, like, it's, it's a film about the cycle of violence. It's a film about, you know, how complex it is. And I wanted to include like what how mothers and mothers' relationships with people really, really affect that cycle. She was the only person that wanted anything changed when we showed, showed them all the fine cut. She, uh, she just wanted that, that cell phone recording shortened a little bit. So it was like, yeah, fine, we can shave a few seconds off. You know, we don't need to play for that long. She was the only person that couldn't make it out to Sundance, but she has been to several Q&As uh, post-Sundance. There's one Q&A where I think it really started sinking in, like what the film meant to other people. It was at a college campus, and um, we had a domestic violence shelter out there at the booth. You know, they'd bring people that they served out to the screening, and several caseworkers there. But in the Q and A, a lot of people, a lot of older women, were were 
telling Nina just, you know, everything like abusive relationships that they'd been through and how just amazing it was that her, you know, in her early 20s had dealt with this and had really like taken a lot from it and moved on in many ways. And she talked with them all afterwards, but it was identified as the moment that Nina really felt, okay, this, this story is bigger than my own. And my mom has a similar story too about, you know, like how she's realized like she's not alone in this. Well, thanks so much for making the time to be here for this screening, and thanks for the film. One more round of applause for them. That was Bing Liu, the director of Minding the Gap, with the WEX's associate curator of film video, Chris Stultz. For more info about our year-round film programming and all things WEX, go to wexarts.org.